News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi today. Well, are you working from home? Have you stayed at the office or maybe a bit of a combination? Many people trying to figure out what the future of their work situation is going to look like. But what about productivity? What is the most productive? Joining us to talk a little bit more about that is Linda Duxbury, Professor of Management at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. Thank you so much for being with us. I was just out there the other day. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it was not, well, it was rainy. But. Uh, <laughs> apologies, but uh, there's a good chance you're going to get some rain uh, when you're visiting uh, this time of year. But uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's such an interesting topic, given people are still working from home. Many people are looking to come back to the office, maybe have a hybrid approach. What have we learned, do you think, as far as productivity when it comes to working from home? Um. Not much, actually. So everybody's talking about, well, look at the last two and a half years, and I was really productive, and I this, and I that, and we have proof of concept. This works. So a couple things. One, we have proof of nothing, okay? The last two-plus years, nobody would say it was normal at all. And and more, we had about 40% of our workforce home. It wasn't like... Some people were in the office. Some people were at home. It was everybody was at home. So we managed. We went from managing everybody in one place to managing everybody in another place, okay? And that's not what we're talking about now. The second is, and I think everybody who's listening will know the reality, you know, people worked longer hours. People worked evenings. People worked weekends. People worked all the hours God gave them um, as they tried to fit in their work around Schooling their kids, uh, interruptions, learning new technology. So productivity didn't actually go up. So for everybody who's going, yes, but I was just as productive at home, I would say our data says you worked about 10 hours more a week. So, you know, and you maintained or got a little bit more done, but if you put in more hours, it's not more productivity. And the other thing I would point out is work-life balance for many people went down, stress went up, anxiety went up, depression went up. And some of that is directly related to the pandemic, but some of it is really related to the struggle of trying to do everything in a setup that's not ideal. Right. And interesting when you mentioned the longer hours, because I was talking to somebody in that scenario saying that she took away a commute of an hour each way, but that time she didn't get that time back that time went into working and she was saying yeah. the company is then if, if they do end up going back to work the companies now come become they depend on that those two hours of work and she's saying but the commute time goes back so where are we going to find that time how are we going to deal with with actually losing the the extra time we were working going back to the office well, there's a lot of uh, messy things going on. So I was just doing an interview the other day. I don't know if you know, but Ontario has put in a right to disconnect law, which mm-hmm. says you, you can't, your boss can't send you an email after hours. And they were saying, will that make a difference? <clears throat> I said, the problem is we simply do not have enough people hired in our workplaces, many workplaces, to do all the work that we've got. We've got too many priorities, too much change, too much churn, and this has been going on for a long time. So, you know, 
your friend is 100% right. The problem is we don't have enough hours in the day. And your, your employer doesn't consider your commute time to be work time. So we consider that right. where you live is your choice. <clears throat> you got to just get to work and do the work during these designated hours. So they're not thinking in terms of commute time. Do you think that we, they, you mentioned too how, yes, when everybody went home and started working from home, I, I mean, it was a very different time and that kids were also at home. And like you yes. said, people were trying to balance all of these things and trying to figure it out. Uh, with kids back at school and, and people trying maybe or, or figuring out what a routine looks like that involves working from home, uh, do we have that opportunity then to figure out how to do it and not be completely stressed and work all of these extra hours? So you're asking, excuse me, all kinds of really, you know, complicated questions where there's not a simple one-minute radio answer, all right? So there's people's personality. There's people's ability. So if you're really good at managing your time, your job doesn't require a lot of uh, tasks that are, in fact, better done face-to-face. So you have no creativity, no brainstorming, no relationship building, no client contact. Uh, you, do you see what I mean? So some jobs can be done very well at home. Other jobs cannot. And, and I'm encouraging organizations to start thinking about tasks, not jobs. Each job is made up <clears throat> of a number of different tasks. Some of those tasks can be done at home. Some were done at home, but done at home ineffectively. So we have to start, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> figuring out how we're going to put the pieces of tasks together so that both employees and employers and your clients and your family are all, you know, satisfied. So there's going to be a lot of discussion, I'm hoping, and a lot of compromise. No one is going to get, I don't think, exactly what they want. People are not going to, a lot of people can't work five days a week at home. And a lot of people will not work five days a week in the office. So how are we going to manage that? And so I think it's early days yet. All right. Uh, a lot of questions still to be answered. Linda Duxbury, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care and uh, good luck. All Bye-bye. right. Uh, thank you again. That is Linda Duxbury, Professor of Management at Carleton University's Sprott School of... This is Mornings with Simi. We are talking about flowers today, organic flowers, and joining us is Rachel Ryle, owner of a local family floral farm, the River and Sea Flowers Farm in Ladner. Rachel, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for speaking with me. Well, it's uh, so interesting. I I was looking at some of the background of of your farm of River and Sea Flowers, but tell us a bit, uh, how did uh, you get involved with flowers and the farm come about in Ladner? Um, so I started off growing vegetables, um, both with my parents' business and my sister, growing organic vegetables. Um, and I just fell for flowers. I kept wanting to pick them more and grow them more. Um, and now we've been at it for, let's see here, this is our seventh season, I believe. And how difficult, or maybe not difficult, how challenging is it to, as far as getting the flowers to grow? And, and I was looking at some of the photos on your website. I mean, they're just beautiful. But how difficult is it growing flowers, say, as, as compared to, to growing vegetables? 
Oh, I'd say it's a little trickier. They're a little bit more challenging. Um, sometimes they don't like to germinate as well when you start them from seed. Some of them take longer to um, be ready to pick. So it might be, you know, with peonies, it takes three years before you can harvest anything. So it's it's a bit of a trickier one, but it's very well worth it. <laughs> and so that must go into then what you how you decide what to plant or what flowers to grow? Yeah, definitely. So lots of the flowers we grow are annuals. So we plant them every year and we grow lots and lots of different kinds of them because they're um, a little bit easier. And then other flowers we only grow a small amount of and plant them every few years um, just because they are a little bit more challenging and take a bit more time and effort to get them going. Um, as we know, it's been a very cool and a very damp spring or start to the season. How has that had an impact on you? Oh, it has been really rough. Um, we are about three weeks behind on uh, planting out in the field. So we've got really sad seedlings waiting to be planted still. It's just been so wet, we can't get them in the soil. And lots of flowers are so late to bloom. So, for example, like the peonies I was just mentioning, they um, typically start blooming just after Mother's Day. And they only started, um, let's see here, about a week ago, week and a half ago. Hmm. So it's a slow start. And does that mean it'll be a slow year then as far as, will it, will the yield be less, do you think, or it's just going to be delayed? Uh, it will definitely be delayed and and the yield will be affected. Um, because we're getting in later, our plants are less happy because they've been waiting to get in the ground. They want to stretch those roots out in the soil instead of being stuck sitting in a tray. Um, and so they'll just be less productive because they're not as happy to start. And we'll have flowers starting later. So the later they get planted, the later they start blooming. Um, it, it'll have quite a big impact on us this year. And what kind of response are you seeing? Or kind of, we know people are getting back into the wedding industry. So many weddings that were postponed during the pandemic. Uh, I would imagine you've seen a bigger demand for flowers. Or where does the bulk of your demand come from? Um, yeah, so weddings are going to be, well, and already are huge this year from all the backup from the last couple of years. Um, we sell a lot of our flowers to florists, and so I know that they're having some very busy year, years already. Um, and then some of them we sell in buckets to DIY brides. And so I've had so many inquiries this year, and we're getting quite filled up just with people looking to do their own flowers. So it's a big, it's a big wedding year. Uh, yeah, we've, we've been hearing from so many planners and venues and such uh, that it is a huge year. Uh, do people then make requests as far as how fashion trends and color trends change? Do those also change in what people are looking for in flowers? Yeah, they do to a degree. Um, it's, yeah, there is definitely. Um, it sometimes takes a couple years for it to become super popular. Um, but the classic blush and white is, is a very still a very common wedding color um, theme for flowers. And is it still the traditional as well as roses? Or you mentioned peonies, which are so beautiful. Uh, are, what about like kind of other more uh, or different or, or I guess more original type flowers? Um, so we grow a lot of ranunculus, which people often mistake for peonies or roses. Um, those have become quite popular because they have a really long boss life. Um, what else do we have? We don't grow any of your typical roses and hydrangeas. Um, they're all really unique flowers, mostly ones that um, don't ship well and um, often have a little bit of a shorter vase life, but also might have a lot of scents or be a really unique color or shape. 
All right. And we only have about a minute left, but Rachel, I wanted to ask you about uh, CSA or community supported agriculture, because I know a lot of farms do that with vegetables and foods, but you also do that Mm -hmm. with flowers. We do. Yeah. So people can sign up uh, ahead of time and they can um, get a bouquet every week. So right now we um, are selling, we still have shares available for our Dahlia Lovers CSA. So we grow lots and lots of Dahlias and they can get a bouquet of Dahlias every week. Um, it just gets the farm a little bit of extra money at the spring season when we're busy planting and not getting any income. And then they reap the reward with beautiful flowers for weeks. Wonderful. Well, Rachel, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, People can check out uh, your website, riverandseaflowers.com. But thank you so much for joining us. That's great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to talk a little bit about a piece in the Financial Post written by Editor-at-Large Diane Francis with the title Trudeau's Hypocrisy on Foreign Funding. And Diane Francis joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Good to be here. Uh, Talk a little bit about this because you have taken a look at foreign funding, which has been a big issue in this province in the past. What have you found? Well, I was uh, asked to meet with some people who were involved in the Alberta Public Inquiry, uh, which was looking into how much uh, financing and funding by various sources went into the fight against all of the Alberta energy development projects, pipelines, all kinds of things, and with a view towards stranding the oil sands, which is the world's third biggest depository of oil. Uh, and they looked into it. It took, I think, about two years, three and a half million bucks. And they had to go through tax returns in the U.S. And I mean, it was meticulous work, very detailed. The report was voluminous. And it came out last fall. And there was a little bit of stories. There were a few stories about it because their findings were that there was a whole bunch of money spent out of America to fight a Canadian export industry, which doesn't seem very fair. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of attention because the liberal media is pretty, the, bi- the, the media is very biased. I mean, the CBC is a joke and, and so on. So, so, you know, they said, have another look at this. And they, they wanted me to have a look at it. So I spent a couple of hours and, of course, I poured through all of the documentation. And what shocked me was the fact that, you know, we had a prime minister, we have a prime minister who got all upset because and his government, because some right-wing groups were financing, apparently financing through a website, uh, some of these truck convoy uh, members, and, you know, and so on. I don't want to talk about the truck convoy. I just want to talk about the issue of having foreign people financing to cause trouble in policy and to change policy in Canada. Well, he came down hard, as we know. I mean, overreached. It was embarrassing globally on that situation. Here, this report documents meticulously that $1.28 billion was, was, de- was deployed by American foundations given to Canadian environmental organizations. We don't, I don't know the names of who or what, uh, to, to damage our biggest exports, which are the oil and gas industry. Now, what if they did that to what if what if 1.2 billion dollars was spent to go after the forestry industry in BC or agriculture in Canada or in the Okanagan Valley or fisheries in the Maritimes or exports from Hydro Quebec? I mean that is not 
fair ball. And that's, that's really uh, damaging to us as a nation. Nothing was said. Nothing has been done, even though the report also showed that these recipients in Canada of the money don't have to disclose it necessarily, and many of them did not, and it was disguised. The other issue that I raised was, and I, I write a lot about Russia, Ukraine, and I'm involved in the think tank world in Washington, D.C. We know that gobs of money was sent by the Russians through Bermuda Trusts to go into U.S. foundations to fight their oil industry. And of course, some of that, or maybe extra amounts, were probably sent to fight and strand the oil sands because Russia's only way of making a living has been oil and gas. And so they have had a worldwide campaign for years against fracking, against nuclear power, against any carbon any carbon form of energy worldwide. I'm sure they're very much involved in the major environmental movement, uh, you know, out of Europe and certainly in the United States. So, so I thought this is, this is to me, this is dereliction of duty. I want my prime minister standing up for me. I don't want him, you know, coming down hard, which I don't think was naturally inappropriate. The, the coming down hard was inappropriate, but getting angry about right wingers sending money to a truck convoy to disrupt our border crossing. But he says nothing and has done nothing about a, a monumental amount of money, which was a concentrated campaign to damage Canada's number one export industry and says nothing and does nothing. All the right. other thing, the, the other thing in the report, it's complicated. So I want to make sure people know all of the information out of the report, is that it also said that what, for for four hundred million dollars of federal government money, your tax dollars and mine, were allocated and earmarked to these same anti oil and gas environmental groups. Now I wasn't asked if I would agree with that, and I think that's a misappropriation of federal government money. And it has gone on since 2003, but it has really increased greatly under the Trudeau regime. All right, about you know seven eighths of that has come come from the Trudeau regime. I think that's sabotage. All right, Diane, we could go on about this, but we are right out of time. My thanks so much for you for joining us. That is Diane Francis, editor-at-large for The Financial Post. You can read that piece in The Financial Post. This is Mornings with Simi. You heard in the news there, Gord's update on what is happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There is another story related to that we wanted to talk about, and it's how a 15-year-old Ukrainian drone pilot helped destroy a Russian army column. And taking a look at the bigger picture of what role drones are playing when it comes to things such as war, such as fighting the enemy. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Eric Saksuk, Geomat- Geomatics Engineering Instructor at the BC Institute of Technology. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on this, uh, the use of this drone, any surprise how this drone was being used as far as fighting back against the Russian invasion in Ukraine? Yeah, yes and no. Um, obviously, drones are can be great eyes in the sky as um, as the reporter mentioned um what's surprising of course is the is the courage of this night a 15 year old boy that um that decided you know and and him being the most um qualified drone pilot in the in the city that was surprising 
Yeah, exactly. Because I, I think you would think, oh, well, maybe the, the Ukrainian army or soldiers in the army are the ones doing this, not a 15-year-old who's piloting the drone. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, I guess, coming around for full circle, because, of course, drone technology had its roots in the military and then went through the hobbyist phase, then to the commercialization phase of it. And now we see hobbyists sort of um, turning the tables back onto the, onto the military with, with the technology. And is that because the technology has changed as far as making drones more accessible to people or, or easier to kind of maneuver? Or what do you think is leading to this or leading us to a point where we could see a 15-year-old take on this kind of role? Yeah, it's uh, the, the, even the entry-level entry, entry level drones now have uh, you know global positioning system. Uh, they've got something called an inertial measurement unit, which helps to keep the drone stable. They're very easy to fly, very accessible that way. Uh, I still, I still think we we need to keep in mind, especially outside of um, you know uh, war, war zones and things like that in Canada and, and North America in general, just the, the rules and regulations that surround drone uh, use. Uh, those, it's so it's. Uh, I know it seems like you can just pick one up and fly it anywhere, but that's that's generally not not the case. What are the rules then? And it's a good point. We're looking at this because this uh, was a pretty extreme case. But with them becoming more popular and more people getting into this, what are the rules that people need to keep in mind? The basic thing is uh, if the drone weighs 250 grams or more, um, then the pilot does need a Transport Canada R-PASS or remotely piloted aircraft system certification, uh, either at the basic or advanced level. And uh, they need to adhere to the rules. Uh, some of the basic ones, you can't fly higher than 400 feet. You have to maintain visual, sight, visual line of sight with the drone. Um, can't fly it recklessly. Uh, certainly keeping away from uh, anywhere where aircraft are taken off and landing. Those are some of the basic ones. And who's enforcing that as far as if, if somebody's not following those rules? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, that 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 is the, uh, at this point, it's something that's that's being built out. Um, I think the the local law enforcement agencies are being uh, trained by Transport Canada inspectors to ask the right questions and and to be observant of uh, drone operations. Uh, tickets have been handed out, um, but uh, certainly it's the it's the type of thing that uh, you know a lot of people think they can get away with, and it's just really a matter of time. Even because when you say that too, that you have to keep kind of a line of sight uh, with the drone, even the, the not the the super expensive drones or drones that people are, are getting into as more of a hobby, it's pretty easy to to send it off, isn't it? To, and to suddenly realize you can see following on the camera from, from from of the drone, but it's easy to lose sight of it. Uh, it, it sure is, and with the technology where it is, it's quite advanced. Uh, even even some of the Drones in the hundreds of dollar range have um, uh, radio range up to about eight kilometers. So people think, oh, I can fly this thing about eight kilometers. Well, you you generally lose sight of it about 500 meters. So, you know, just it's really important to keep that in mind. And do you find then with more people getting kind of involved in this or picking up drones, then are we going to see more of that happening or, or more, I guess, more concern that, like you say, 500 meters, you might lose sight of it or there'll be kind of more drone traffic? Well, I think it's moving in that direction, and I do think uh, industry, uh, as well as the regulatory body, uh, Transport Canada, are working um, very well together to, to, to move the whole technology and, and the whole sector into uh, a safe space, uh, but, but also to enable um, all the wonderful applications that this technology represents. 
And, and kind of getting back to what we were talking about in Ukraine, what do you think this means, though, as far as the future of, of civilian involvement in things uh, like wars or like invasions? Well, it certainly it certainly puts uh, it's kind of like cell phones. If you go back to about two thousand eight, smartphones in in, uh, in particular, uh, they became recording tools in in wars and different conflicts in different areas in in the Middle East and and uh, <clears throat> all over the world. So now we're sort of taking taking that reporting level, that um, that visual element um, up uh, as high as this phone will go. So it'll it'll certainly be. Uh, I think more and more leveraged uh, as in, a, in any any future conflicts, and uh, hopefully for for good applications and, and positive applications as well. I, I would imagine too there will be more questions about privacy also and uh, the capability of drones as far as gathering footage and gathering information. Certainly, yeah. One thing to keep in mind is most drones are equipped with relatively wide-angle lenses. They're, they're not really meant to, to zoom in on things. And, and if, you, if you're more than 30, um, 30 meters away from anything, it's very difficult to make out any, any details. So, you know, if you, if you see a drone buzzing around your house at 5 or 10 meters, yeah, that's probably grounds for invasion of privacy. But if it's about 30 meters, 50 meters above your house, there's very little chance of that drone seeing seeing anything of, uh, of that nature. It can still be a bit unnerving, though, when you hear that buzz and you see it. Well, and that, that's actually a, a really good point. I, I think if we're going to be moving forward with this, with drones delivering things and inspecting things and keeping an eye on things, um, one of one of the technological barriers right now is the noise and is the safety element of spinning propellers. So there's a lot of neat technological advances that are moving us towards um, almost silent operation of the drones, and I think that's one of the main things that's going to help people um, adapt to the technology as we as we move forward. Yeah, but do you think that's also are there issues there when it becomes silent as well? Then it's kind of you don't see it, so you maybe you wanted to see it or know that it was above you or or in the area, uh, but now it sees you, but you don't see it. Yeah, there's it's certainly there's there's a lot of um a lot of things to, to sort out. I um I drive an electric vehicle and I sometimes I'm driving behind somebody like on a back lane and they don't know that I'm there because it's just so so quiet. Um and so yeah, uh, all of all of these things are valid points and and I I think it's really important to move forward in a in a constructive way both uh yeah, both on the industry side, the academic side and and the regulatory side to work together to to make sure that this technology is uh, really uh, beneficial to society rather than uh, rather than anything um, you know negative. All right. Well, uh, certainly some interesting stories uh, when it comes specifically to drones and drone capabilities. Uh, Dr. Eric Saxik, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this this morning. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Eric Saxik is a geomatics engineering instructor at BCIT. And again, talking about that story after a 15-year-old in Ukraine was able to launch a drone, a drone that is one to surveil Russian missiles. This is Mornings with Simi.
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, we all remember the fire that tore through the Winters Hotel in Gastown. We know two people lost their lives and a lot of questions were asked at the time about the state of the hotel and what could potentially have been done to stop that fire. Well, Jen St. Dennis, who is an investigative journalist at the TIE, has been looking into that and joins us now with what she has found in her latest work on that fatal fire. Jen, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, I know you had to, to file freedom of information requests as well as you talked to many of the, the residents, the former residents of the Winters uh, Hotel. Before we talk about kind of the mechanics and what was working and what wasn't working, what did you learn from the people you talked to about how things unfolded that day? Well, what I learned, I mean, this really highlighted that in these SRO buildings, these single room occupancy hotels, um, people are really, people really know their neighbors. And um, they, what really came out from reporting the story is that they really um, did their best to try to get everybody out of the building. Um, the residents really working together to save their neighbors. But it was, it was just a terrifying scene for them as well. And, and they did their best in that they tried to put that fire out. They did, yeah, yeah. So, so what they said, oh, this man, um, Sean Brandon, and another resident, um, Raven Heaton, were kind of just sitting near Raven's room, just chatting, uh, visiting, and um, on the morning that when the fire started, and then they just noticed smoke coming out of a room down the hall. And when they went to take a look, it was fairly small at that time. They tried to throw a water from a mop bucket on it. And then Sean just describes this frantic search for a working fire extinguisher and running from one end of the hall to the other and just finding the fire extinguisher that was supposed to be on the wall wasn't there. There was a one on the floor, but it was empty. And then experiencing the same thing when he ran to try to get the other one. Um, so you can imagine like how frantic they would have been. And so talk a bit about the, the reason why perhaps that fire extinguisher was empty yeah. or there weren't, there weren't fire extinguishers, the sprinklers weren't working, was there had been another small fire at that hotel just days before? Yeah, and I think this is important to put in context that the previous fire had happened on a Friday on April 8th. And uh, the sprinkler had gone off, the fire was put out. Um, and then after that happened, the fire department came and attended and they turned off the sprinkler system. And that's common practice that's happened. You know, I live in a multifamily building. Um, they turn it off. It has to be serviced by your kind of fire suppression contracting company that you have um, with the building. And I'm guessing, we don't really know this for sure, but I'm guessing just because it happened on a Friday, it was going over a weekend, there was a few days when they were ordered to have a fire watch while the sprinkler was off until somebody could come and service the sprinkler. Um, and the alarm also didn't go off. We don't quite know why that happened. So I'm sort of waiting for the fire investigation to be completed. So that was the situation at the building that there was supposed to be this fire watch, um, a regular patrol to look for fire happening. Um, during that kind of weekend. And that was still supposed to be happening when the second fire on the Monday, April 11th happened. And in your report, so you talked to people about this and so many of the residents that you talked to said there was no indication or no signs that a fire watch was actually taking place. So, so what should have been happening then if, if there was a fire watch ordered for the building? Yeah, so if you look into the regulations for fire watch, it's pretty stringent actually. There's supposed to be um, usually at least a couple people um, kind of in touch with each other while they're doing the fire watch. They're supposed to be in radio contact. They're supposed to wear something that kind of shows people that that's what they're doing, like maybe a vest, safety vest, or something like that. Um, and, yeah, they're supposed to do it quite often. They're supposed to do it every 30 minutes during the day, um, every 15 minutes during um, 
sort of the, the, the night hours. Um, and they're supposed to keep a log. And tenants are also supposed to be notified and there's supposed to be notices up. Um, and so I talked to 13 tenants. I kept on asking for to talk to more and more people because I really wanted to establish that. And they all were really adamant that they didn't see any fire watch happening over the weekend and weren't told. And what's more, I also talked to four business owners who were in the, in the ground floor who also said they, they weren't notified at all. And, um, and the business owners were quite upset about it because some of them said, you know, we would have we done things differently if we had known the sprinkler uh, wasn't on. Right, and would have done things differently in that maybe would have stayed after hours yeah. or, or, or... Yeah, one, one person actually told me, what the um, owner of this watch company called Rolled Off, um, he actually told me he would have hired security to, to be at his premises all night um, just because of, you know, the nature of his business. Um, so, yeah, that kind of... <laughs> To me, that just said like that he really, you know, he really was not aware and and thought he should have been aware. And did you get the impression as well from residents? Had they known this, maybe had the notices been up, had there had they known, um, you know, if the, another another fire starts, we don't have the firefighting tools here. That that things might have been different. Yeah, I'm not sure if if things would have been different, um, but I, I think maybe being more aware that the that the sprinklers weren't on, people didn't seem to be aware of that that the sprinklers weren't working. And you know, these SRO buildings, they have fires all the time for for various reasons because there are people with really serious mental illness housed in these buildings who maybe sometimes set fires. Um, they're also just really old buildings, and fires can spread quickly. Um, people can be um, sometimes using drugs and using candles. So there's all sorts of reasons why little fires start in these buildings all the time. They're usually put out fairly quickly. So I possibly, yeah, if the residents had known, they they might have been a little bit more careful or just being a little bit more aware of their surroundings. Right, because like you said off the beginning, there the two who were there who first saw the fire, and I think you write the fact that the the one actually saw candles burning in in one of the rooms that they tried to, they yeah. tried to put it out. Well, yeah, and and they're they're you know they're well aware that there's all there's often fires in their building. A lot of people actually buy their own fire extinguishers and have them in their rooms, so just to kind of. Uh, be extra careful, and and they they tried. Some of them tried to use those fire extinguishers, but by that time, it had just the fire had gotten too big, and, and it did spread very quickly from all accounts. And uh, like we mentioned as well, the two people lost their lives. Uh, many people lost all of their belongings. Uh, they lost their pets in this fire. Were you able to talk to people about kind of how they're doing now and what happens next? Yeah, so I think, it, you know, getting out of the fire was really, really traumatic for people. Some people walked through flames. Some people struggled to just get their pets out. And one, one man, his pet, like, jumped out of its leash, his dog, and ran back in, and he lost his pet. Um, people had blisters on their feet or on their arms because the, the hallway was so hot when they touched the hallway. Um, so they're still really dealing with trauma. I talked to one woman, Jennifer Hansler, who said she still gets, has a traumatic response when she walks down Abbott Street. That big pile of rubble is still there. So when they see that, they get really upset. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of struggling. And then, of course, losing all your belongings. And, you know, when you're when you're someone who lives in poverty already, like your belongings are really important to you. So and some people lost just things that are irreplaceable, like photos of family members and ashes of, you know, loved ones and that sort of thing as well. Uh, what do you think happens next then as far as uh, is, will there be more of an investigation into this or, or perhaps even changes to, to protocols or to make sure that, that things are followed as far as fire watches and such in the, in the future? 
So, yeah, I'm waiting for the fire department's um, investigation to be completed. That's going to continue for um, a few weeks, and then hopefully we'll find out a little bit more. I know that they have been talking to witnesses. I know they have um, some video footage. So um, that's kind of, for me, that's the next step. Once we know the results of that investigation, I think then just pushing for answers and just always keeping top of mind that, you know, two very vulnerable people um, lost their lives. One of the men, one of the people who died uh, was deaf. Um, another woman was a res- residential school survivor who was 68 years old. So that for me is going to be top of mind that, you know, we will continue be, to be pushing for accountability um, for this, this terrible, tragic fire. All right. Jen St. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That is Jen St. Dennis, an investigative journalist at the TIE. You can read the piece at thetie.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, we now know 619 deaths were attributed to the heat dome that we saw last year, almost one year ago. And we know more about the deaths, people who were elderly and compromised, many people who lived alone and who didn't have access to cooling centers or to cooler climates. Well, joining us to talk more about the coroner's report and where we go from here is Chief Medical Officer with the BC Coroner's Service, Dr. Dr. Jatinder Badwin. Dr. Badwin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, When you look at uh, some of the findings and some of the highlights and the deaths uh, that we saw because of the heat dome, what is your number one takeaway from this report? We've got to be more prepared, Um, not not just the agencies that everyone seems to think about, but just generally, you know, the population is going to be far more prepared for the swings that we're going to get in our uh, temperatures um, as we go over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, so we have been talking about things like that, such as having access to cooling centers, uh, making sure people who can get, uh, say, air conditioning or fans. Uh, is that what you're talking about as far as when it comes to being more prepared? A little bit, but but some of it's about just doing simple things like, you know, identifying the vulnerable population out there, the vulnerable people that uh, perhaps don't do as well. Because what we did find through our investigations is that you can predict those groups that aren't going to do as well as the general population. And if we can do that, then then it kind of behooves us to actually find those folks beforehand and make sure that they're going to be looked after, because that's what living in a civilized society is really about. Um, And so that's what we've got to do. And we've also got to do simple things like, um, you know, ensure that uh, the building codes that we've got that sort of ensure that we build appropriately they're all con- they all concentrate on our old context, which was really keeping warm in the winter, because that's when people really suffered. Uh, but now the summer is going to be equally harsh. And so we've got to make sure that our buildings are designed in a way that can actually put up with our swinging temperatures that we're going to be getting throughout the year. And what that really means is that that's going to take 10, 15, 20 years to even build new stock in terms of housing that does that if we had new building codes this week. But but what we really need to do is start working at retrofitting and, and having rebate programs and doing things like that so that we can actually change the way that people live and so they can stay in their homes and actually you know put up with the swings in climate that we're going to get and they don't have to leave. But there's going to be a part of it which, which will mean that in the next couple of years while all of that's happening, folks are going to perhaps have to leave their homes to go to a cooler place um, when, when these sort of temperatures come or they're going to have to you know ensure that they can stay cool in their own homes. Um, but, but the nub, number of it is that we now know what the vulnerable populations are and we need to go and make sure that we sort of you know, get in touch with them and make sure that they're going to be okay. 
Right. And, and when, so when you talk about that, because one of the findings from the report was that there was a lag between the heat alerts that were issued by Environment and Climate Change Canada. Uh, we were hearing about the, that from meteorologists as well, that this extreme heat was coming. So the report finds there was a lag between that and the response of public agencies and the public. Uh, so when you talk about we need to identify the most vulnerable groups, are, are you talking about something like a neighbour knocking on a neighbour's door or a bigger response? when it comes to, say, a public agency? What you're saying, absolutely. Neighbours knocking on neighbours' doors, you know, getting to know what the needs of your neighbours are, uh, living in communities in, in a more fulsome fashion like that, that that's all very important. But, but also, um, you know, in a structural way, um, we know that 70% of those that succumbed had actually seen a um, health professional, a doctor, in the, in the month prior to, to their dying. And, you know, what was done during that uh, encounter can we shape um, the encounter into something when we know that people are coming up to the summer? Can we ensure that when you go to your um, family physician, if you have a family physician, or when you go to sort of a clinic that you go and visit, that there's a checklist of things that people make sure that you're going to be prepared? You know, there's all sorts of things that we could be doing. I mean, it's wonderful that we're now going to have a, an alert system that, you know, with different levels of heat is going to trigger a different response, and we're going to get told that that's happening. And that's going to that's gonna make it much easier for public agencies to, to reshape themselves quickly, to, to be able to better help us when, when the heat hits. I mean, that would have made a massive difference last year if BC Ambulance, for instance, had had two days to really think about how they need to bring back staff from leave or, or you know, change shift patterns, you know, make sure that ambulances are doing the work that they need to be doing as opposed to ferrying patients to a, to a hospital outpatient appointment whatever needs to happen can happen. Um, so there's going to be a lot of work that you know, we can do that can cascade out of a heat alert. And so I know that on Monday that that's um, already been announced that we're going to have that in the province. So I think that's already a big step toward in the right direction. Right, and a big step. But but do you think that uh, we're talking a lot about the alert system, but if we look at what happened in this heat dome, if we look at, again, the people that were identified in this report uh, who were the most highly vulnerable and who died, uh, we could be talking about somebody who's in their older three-story walk-up building, sitting there, maybe watching the news, sees on the news that there is extreme weather coming, which is kind of an alert system in itself. But if that person doesn't have the social network, doesn't have a means of getting to a cooler place, they're still not going to, are they? No, you're absolutely right. And that's what one of the recommendations is all about. Not uh, Simply identifying people isn't enough. Once you've identified people, then you've got to put action plans in place that are, you know, that are regional, provincial, as well as local, that are going to basically filter down to, to having, uh, a check, you know, people having a checklist of individuals that they're going to check on. You know, whether those people are paid for, whether they're volunteers, you know, I, I can't say which one will work better for which community, but, but there's going to have to be a real, uh, you know, concerted effort at every level in the province to try and be better at, at responding to the next heat dome. Uh, the report also found that uh, the, the median time of, of paramedics' response was 10 minutes, 25 seconds. Uh, there were 50 instances, though, where it took 30 minutes or longer for paramedics to arrive. Uh, that's in no way uh, saying that the blame lies on paramedics, because we've we've heard from the paramedics' union saying staffing is a huge issue. They were they were running. I mean, they were working as much overtime as they could. Uh, so so I get what you're saying when when paramedics are clearly a part of the solution. But uh, even now, we're hearing from paramedics that they can't say the staffing levels are back up, they're back in a position where they're ready to, to be ahead of this. 
I, I can't speak for the paramedic union and I can't speak for the BC Emergency Health Services. What I can tell you is at the death review panel, there was a lot of discussion about sort of um, what, the, what the response has to be. And, and really, primarily, the response has got to be a preventative one. Um, if we're needing um, paramedics to do an extraordinary effort to, in, at times like this, then what we're really saying is that we failed in our preventative uh, and our adaptive uh, changes that we need to make. And that's where the that's where the the, the the nub of this work is going to be is doing the preventative work, making sure that we've got the right communication strategies out there, making sure that we've identified all the people that are vulnerable, and ensuring that they're going to get the help that they need, either to take them to a cooling centre or to actually bring cooling to them, and and both will work. So that's the work. I mean, that has to happen when when someone needs the BC ambulance service to turn up and take them away to a hospital, and they need the services of a hospital. We've actually failed. Because no one should need that if they're if they're able to be cooled in, in before they they get to the point where they're going to become ill. Right, and and I think one of the more kind of well, I mean, the fact that there were six hundred nineteen deaths is heartbreaking. But also hearing about the fact that that many of those deaths did take place kind of later in hospital after somebody had been taken by ambulance to hospital. Do you think we've learned from this? Like you said, in the past, we've often focused on the winter, and even with the alerts of this heat dome, I think there was still the mindset of okay, well, it's going to be hot, but we can deal with this. Have we learned the, the danger? Dangers, or become more in tune with the dangers associated with heat. I, th- I think it's a continual learning process, and, I, and what, what, what I can say to you is that the people that we got together in the death review panel um, were all sort of eminent in their field. Are all people that sort of um, understand their field, you know, very well. And we had all sorts of individuals in that room, including health professionals. And um, what, one thing that everyone agreed on was the best way to handle this kind of work is to ensure that we do not suffer the consequences of the heat rather than dealing with the consequences. So you, you quite correctly said that people actually made it to hospital and then succumbed sort of, you know, sometimes two weeks later. Um, some of that's due to the fact that when, when someone's physiologically sort of assaulted by the heat, um, their, their usual mechanisms disappear. And if they've already got chronic disease burden on top, which we know that 70% of the individuals that succumbed, whether on three or more chronic disease registries, and what that really means is that you're not in optimal condition in the first place. So, so you know, um, I, what I, all I can say is that prevention here is going to be the key. It isn't about, I mean, obviously we have to have a response and someone's ill, they've got to be looked after. But the vast majority of that, 619 people that died on the, during that period, they would not have died in that period if we'd put preventative, meds, uh, preventative um, procedures in place to get them cooled. Um, and that's what we have to do. All right, Dr. Bedwan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Jatinder Bedwan, Chief Medical Officer with the BC Coroner's Service.